0: How do we make heat? Well, heat is energy. Where do we make energy? We need fuel to make the energy. There's no sugar. There's no glucose around. What do we use? Welcome to Commune. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today, we're exploring insulin resistance and stress, how they're connected and how they can impact your efforts to lose weight. Now, if you want to hear more on the topic of weight loss, or more specifically, fat loss and body recomposition, well, be sure to check out episode number 528, titled Beyond the Scale, Lose Fat, Gain Muscle, with Max Lugebier and Jesse Anchospe, aka the glucose goddess on the audio podcast, and also here on our YouTube channel. First up is Benjamin Bickman, MD. Now, Dr. Bickman is a metabolic research scientist and author of the great book, Why We Get Sick. Now, in the first half of today's episode, we discuss insulin as a vital hormone, its role in metabolism, and some of the primary causes of insulin resistance that can lead to weight gain and the inability to lose weight. So without further delay, let's jump right in. And here's Dr. Bickman. I recently finished uh, your book, which is just masterfully constructed, why we get sick. Um, And you point clearly to this hidden epidemic that sits upstream, if you will, from so many of our most common Uh, chronic diseases. And that, of course, is insulin resistance. Um, And this is a condition that I had personally, um, but it's a condition that impacts so many people, which is why it's so important. And so many people don't know about. Um, So maybe we could just start on the ground floor um, and talk about insulin just as a hormone and its primary role in the body.
1: Yeah right and in fact that's a nice place to start because I sometimes am concerned that I give the impression of insulin just being a villain that mm-hmm. it is this monolithic evil in the body and that, that of course is not true it is absolutely a hormone of uh, essential to life and the absence of insulin is a death sentence over the matter of generally a few weeks you know in other words uh, an untreated type 1 diabetic uh, will will die so insulin's thematic effect is to promote the growth of a cell, it, which is of course, we can see why that would be so important. We need cells to grow, but never ending growth of course is cancer. So we need cells to know when to not grow or when to stop growing, when to die. Insulin doesn't wanna have any of those effects. It only wants growth. And so it becomes one of the many instruments in this orchestra of endocrinology where you have some hormones, insulin being the most powerful promoting growth, and you have other hormones, which are myriad, um, that are promoting, well, I, I don't wanna say death, but promoting breakdown. And this is the balance of the word that we call metabolism. Metabolism is simply the balance between anabolic reactions or anabolism and the catabolic processes. So the building up of molecules or the breaking down of those molecules. Insulin is very, very firmly on the anabolic side not only promoting growth, but also inhibiting breakdown. And one of the reasons it's important to appreciate insulin's effects is that it's one of the few hormones that affect every single cell of the body. And, mm. and I mean that literally. It doesn't matter what the cell is, if you, if you take it out and look at it, it will have little, little docks, a little receptor um, for insulin. In other words, a little doorway just designed for insulin to come and knock on, to tell the cell to do something. Every single cell of the body will respond to insulin in some way. Thus, when we start to explore problems of insulin, we can begin to appreciate, as you alluded to, some of its the, the incredible array of consequences. And it becomes not particularly surprising when we look at problems of the brain or problems of the bones or problems of the liver, or etc. Et, et that are impacted by uh, insulin resistance.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you framed it um, in that way, that so many of these hormones or chemical signals in the body work kind of on this teeter-totter, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, glucagon, which uh, I think needs a a better PR agent Um, (laughs) since uh, insulin gets talked about a lot, but it's, it's countervailing or counterposing molecule. Um, which is more catabolic in nature, doesn't really get talked about. But like you said, I think what we're always striving for when we're, uh, you know, when we're trying to instantiate health in our life is that delicate, sensitive balance between growth on one side, which is anabolic or insulin-related, and then repair and, and restoration. Um, but I think we would both agree that we live in a culture that sanctifies endless growth, right? Yeah, yeah uh, well said. So, perhaps you can um, unwind a little bit what creates a resistance to this very molecule of insulin.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So, you, uh, I'll remind everyone of what, what you'd mentioned, and I'll elaborate on that, which is that, you know, why even talk about this? It's because this is the single most common health problem worldwide. Uh, within the United States, uh, we estimate that up to eighty-eight percent of adults are insulin resistant, and wow. as, as much as we think here in the U.S., you know, we have a tendency—I consider it to be somewhat unfortunate—to think that the United States is the worst in everything. That you know, metabolically, we're the fattest, we're the sickest, and that's actually not—not not even nearly true. Uh, when you look across the world, rates of obesity and insulin resistance are higher across all of the Middle East, and even throughout most of Southeast Asia and Asia in North Asia. Uh, these are problems that are um, considerably relevant worldwide. And, and certainly the Pacific Islands are, are way up there, well beyond the United States. Even within our own backyard, Mexico has higher rates than we do. So as bad as the problem is in the US, and it is, it is, it is even worse in many, many areas around the world. So insulin resistance being the most common problem we it behooves us to understand its origins and there are what I consider to be three primary uh, origins and each independent of the other. Now just by way of clarity when I use the word primary, I have my, my own particular definition there because there are there are numerous noxious stimuli that will induce insulin resistance in in various experimental models and mm-hmm. and that's why when I invoke the word primary I mean that these three causes, causes, which I'll elaborate more on a moment, they have been shown to cause insulin resistance in isolated cell cultures, you know, when you start growing cells in a little petri dish. They've been shown to cause insulin resistance in laboratory rodents, you know, a commonly used model in biomedical laboratories, and in humans, you know, the pinnacle of all creation, but humans at the top, and these three primary causes will still induce insulin resistance in the human. And the three primary causes are in any no, no particular order one is stress, one is inflammation, and one is too much insulin and And Jeff, if you'll allow me to hijack the conversation for just another moment, I'll elaborate on them just a bit. And when I say stress, that's a not unlike inflammation. It's a term that has it's a very loaded term culturally. there's a lot of Um, So uh, a lot of awareness and interest in that term. And and so I wanna make sure we understand it correctly. Uh, And with stress, I mean the elevation of the prototypical stress hormones, and that is cortisol and epinephrine, also known as adrenaline. These are the two stress hormones of the body. So when I teach my, my graduate students in endocrinology about the stress response, I teach it in the context. I frame it around those two hormones. And these two hormones, have almost nothing in common. Cortisol and epinephrine are totally different types of hormones, they fall into different classes of hormones. They're produced from different cell types. They move through the blood stream in different ways. They activate cells throughout the body in very, very different ways. The one thing they have in common is that they both want to increase blood glucose levels. And they do so very, very quickly. A little shot of adrenaline, blood glucose is gonna climb. A shot of cortisol, blood glucose is gonna climb. Well, that, of course, puts them at odds with the hormone insulin, one of whose primary jobs is to reduce blood glucose. Mm. Now, inflammation is another very, very loaded term, and it's one that I confess I sometimes roll my eyes at a little bit because I believe it's invoked too readily. You know, people want to drop the word inflammation just too frequently and blame everything on inflammation. Uh, And of course, inflammation has a very necessary role. If it weren't for inflammation, we would die at the slightest sniffle. You know, the immune system is utterly vital to our survival and even just our repair and recovery. You know, when we are recovering from a workout, it's an inflammation process that's improving the strength and integrity of the muscle and the bones. It's using the same cells, the same processes that we would consider to be only relevant if we're fighting an infection. You no, know, it, it, this is a, this is a, a skill set or a bag of tools that can be used in myriad ways from fighting an infection to healing and recovering from from even something like a workout or a scratch. Uh, So with inflammation, when the inflammatory proteins are elevated in the blood, and these are referred to as cytokines, then they promote insulin resistance at tissues. This was actually the work of my postdoctoral fellowship that I did with Duke uh, Medical School many years ago. It was actually elaborating or elucidating, rather, on the specific pathway within the cell that when you have a cytokine come and bind to the cell, activating an immune pathway, which every cell has, oddly enough or unexpectedly, um, that will promote insulin resistance within the cell. And this is noticed um, as we have more and more people wearing continuous glucose monitors, I have mine from levels right now. You got yours. Mm-hmm. Um, as people wear more and more CGMs, they will notice um, when th- that their glycemic variability is really going haywire, and it will often predicate them starting to feel a little sick, a scratchy throat, a runny nose. And, and in fact, it can almost be used not only as an indicator, but even a predict of a predictor of the onset of an illness, a cold or a flu, let alone Hmm. something more severe. So inflammation, again, totally independent of any other variable, is also capable of of causing insulin resistance. Now, the third and final, and what I consider to be the most important, is chronically elevated insulin. This um, contributor uh, takes a little bit of thinking in order to see the, the model or the way it interacts because what ends up happening is the creation of a vicious cycle. Um, and I do believe it's the most relevant because it is the one that not only can you really identify um, very, very well through blood tests, it's also very responsive to interventions. In other words, if, if we were meeting with someone, Jeff, and, and we sat down with the person and we say, well, your stress hormones are elevated um, and that's contributing to your insulin resistance. Well, the individual would say, "Well, how do I lower my stress hormones?" And we would say, "Well, we don't really know because we're not sure why your stress hormones are high. It's just it's a difficult knob to really grasp. It's it's a little slippery. The same goes with inflammation. If we noticed that someone had higher levels of C-reactive protein." and they would say, well, how do I lower my C-reactive protein? We would say, well, we don't really know what's causing it. Is it something you're breathing? Is it something you're eating? Is it an autoimmune disorder? We don't really know. In contrast to both of those, insulin, if it's elevated, and we can measure that easily, we know exactly what to do to lower it. And I won't get ahead of myself because that can be part of the later conversation, but too much insulin will promote insulin resistance. And this is reflective of a fundamental biological principle. Too much of something will promote a resistance to that something. And this is uh, almost an eternal truth, whether it is sort of uh, body, mind or soul. If we are incessantly um, inundated with a noxious stimulus, we become resistant to that stimulus. And we need more and more and more of it in order to get the same response that we used to. And, and, and now when we, when we view this through the lens of the modern diet, which worldwide, the average, um, like the, the typical global diet con, uh, consumes almost 70% of all of its calories from carbohydrates. And it's carbohydrates, not proteins, not fats, that spike insulin uh, the most. In fact, by a wide margin. And so it's easy to see then, as we continue to lay this out, that you have the average individual globally Who wakes up in the morning and eats a starchy, sugary breakfast. Their insulin levels have been coming down overnight, and they immediately ramp them up, easily boosting insulin levels by 10 times, easily. And then even in in an insulin-sensitive person, it may take up to three hours for the insulin to come back down to normal. And if you're an insulin-resistant person, it can take five or six hours to come back to normal. But of course, long before then, the person is now having a mid-morning snack which once again, is something sugary and refined. And so before insulin even has a chance to start cresting, they've bumped it back up again. And then the same thing happens with a starchy lunch, an afternoon snack, and an evening at their dinner, and then an evening snack. And so the average person is spending every waking moment, and even several hours into their non-waking moments, in a state of elevated insulin, and too much insulin whether it's isolated cells or rodents or humans, contributes and independently causes insulin resistance. And and thus, having framed it that way, the solution starts to become obvious, although we complicate it with medications and things. But this is one of the drums that I beat the loudest. You've allowed me to beat one of them already, which is just emphasizing the importance of insulin resistance in the global conversation of non-communicable diseases but it's also emphasizing the importance of scrutinizing what goes in our mouth and how frequently it's going in our mouth in order to understand where the insulin resistance is coming from. In other words, why has it become the most common, most prevalent metabolic problem or overall problem worldwide? It's because of how we eat.
0: What are some of the other chief contributors to to insulin resistance, would you say?
1: Yeah. So uh, now that we've discussed the primary causes, which each is independently capable of causing insulin resistance in every studied biomedical model, then we can, um, you know, highlight the secondary causes. And these can be things like seed oils, for example. I very much believe seed oils are relevant to this. They have been shown in cell culture studies to directly cause insulin resistance at, say, fat cells and, and other cells. The reason I don't consider it as uh, as a primary cause is simply because uh, it it hasn't been you know really like if you give a human uh you know a a load of of a seed oil you're not gonna necessarily be promoting uh you know chronic insulin resistance that those studies are just lacking currently you know and and perhaps the data will catch up and someday i will bump seed oils from a secondary cause to a primary cause Um, but there are other things like uh which still play into the primary causes like too much caffeine for example, caffeine can cause insulin resistance in part because it, it activates stress hormones. And, and I don't mean to tell people never drink coffee, don't ever drink a Diet Coke or anything, but I do think it behooves the person to be mindful of the dose. Um, and and, and I, So I do think that it's better to kind of scale it down a bit if you can. Um, but I've found that people who struggle with controlling their glucose levels, even though they are very strict with a low carb diet, If it's not their sleep, very often, it's that they're drinking too much caffeine. And that as they start to dose their caffeine down, they find that their glycemic variability starts to quiet down as well.
0: Hey, it's Jeff. And as an athlete, I've been told my entire life to make sure that I get enough electrolytes but it's only recently that I have truly understood what electrolytes are and the many essential physiological functions that they fulfill. Okay. So you ready for electrolytes 101? Here we go. When essential minerals like sodium, potassium, chloride, and magnesium dissolve in a fluid, they form electrolytes. Positive or negative ions needed to maintain vital bodily functions. For example, sodium ions are used by the brain to send electrical signals, hello, electrolytes, through your neurons in order to communicate with other neurons and the cells throughout your body. So electrolytes are key for brain health. Sodium also retains water and maintains proper hydration levels and fluid balance in your cells through a process called osmosis. Now calcium and potassium are needed for muscle contraction. They facilitate muscle fibers to slide together and move over each other as the muscle shortens and contracts. And magnesium is also required in this process so that the muscle fibers can relax after contraction. A Magnesium is a total other beast. It plays a role in protein synthesis, sleep, and blood sugar balance, and hundreds of other functions. It's for all these reasons and more that I add Element to my water. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. And guess what? No sugar. Element is sweetened with stevia, a plant-based sugar substitute that won't spike glucose levels. A 20 ounce serving of many popular sports drinks that I'm sure you know can contain 36 grams of sugar. It's absurd that those products are marketed as healthy when they contain almost as much sugar as a soda. Many listeners know that I still play competitive tennis. Now before I started using Element, I was prone to fatigue and cramping during long matches due to the loss of sodium. No longer. I'm right there moving like a panther at the end of a grueling three-set match. So right now, Element is offering Commune listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packets free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com Commune. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T, drinkelement.com slash commune. Element offers no questions around refunds, so try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a friend, and they will give you your money back, no questions asked. You've got nothing to lose. So go to drinkelement.com slash commune. And as you can see or hear, there is a complex relationship between insulin, insulin resistance, and various health outcomes related to maintaining a healthy weight. Stress is definitely a factor, which is why you'll hear more about it in the next segment. And next up is, well, me. Should I go first person or third person here? Not sure, but talking about the role of stress in weight management and the protocols that i adopted to help me lose 60 pounds of mostly fat so it is certainly connected to stress but through the same mechanism so stress if you have like a endocrine response to stress so, something stressful happens in your life, your HPA axis, which is a primary endocrine axis in your body, then releases like glucocorticoids, cortisol, for example, from your adrenal glands. Mm-hmm. So, your normal st- stress response would be to release cortisol. That is going to stimulate the liver to release glucose got it. And then insulin will follow. Okay. And that is a adaptive um response as part of your sympathetic nervous system response. So if you were to I- encounter a stressful situation within nature as we used to 10,000 20,000 years ago, you would want exactly that response. You'd want stress you'd want cortisol, you want glucose shooting out to your muscles Mm -hmm. because you need to run, you need to fight, fight or flight, right? So that is a normal adaptive response. The problem is is that we live within a time of chronic stress. So with many people, we have this HPA axis always stimulated. We have cortisol always Mm -hmm. being released And then subsequently, then we have the release of glucose. And then of course, in response to glucose, the pancreas is like, we need more insulin. And so we get into a state Mm -hmm. of chronic high insulin, that's called hyperinsulinemia. And that
2: can be just really stress related, not even if you have like a fantastic low glycemic diet, but you're chronically stressed, you could have, can I tell my story? Sure. So, um, you know, Jeff's been wearing this continuous glucose monitor now for a year and a half, which has been probably the, the most transformational gadget that you've, you've put on and the continuous glucose monitor m- monitors your glucose levels and tells you when you're spiking, whether you're low, whether you're high, this is how you found out that you were pre-diabetic. Shocking to both of us. Um, And so then I finally slapped one on last winter. And I, you know, I figured it was was probably fine, but maybe I was toffee. Um, (laughs) And so I I put one on, I figured I would just do it for two, two to four weeks, unless of course, I found out some sort of unpleasant numbers. And put it on it took a day or two to kind of calibrate first it seemed like it was high but you said don't worry about it don't worry about it it just takes a couple days to kind of get used to your body um or your body to it and then I was very regular you know sort of in in range as I guess one would say and um I definitely noticed I my diet maybe wasn't as good as I thought it was because I was eating I for sure ate and drank things that spiked me and not the best ways, but it was clear that if I wanted to be healthier, I could and that my baseline glucose levels, my fasting glucose levels were solid. And then about 10 days in, um, and I, had, I was down at around 80, which I guess is a pretty solid rest in glucose. And then I'll go up to 140, 150 if I, you know, had big two, two cupcakes or something. And that was it. And then I I was monitoring it, but I wasn't really, you know, it wasn't that interesting to me anymore. And then my dad had that that huge, very major health crisis. And I I was monitoring, but I wasn't really paying attention because I was so consumed with going up to visit him in, you know, hospital. And it was very dramatic. And then I looked back on my glucose levels after... um, at that point, and I was up in like the two hundreds, pretty much, but across the board all day long, with a few little dips. And I was just like, "That's incredible." I mean, we hear all the time that stress is the killer. You know, it's just, we all sort of get it, but to actually see that was so. On, I mean, it was so eye opening. And okay, yeah, that's fine. I was obviously it was a crisis point, and. You know, I have enough. I sure I'm. You know, I have enough metabolic fitness to withstand a couple weeks of like crazy spikes. But for people mm-hmm. who are cool. chronically stressed, you know, whatever there's so many ways to be stressed, environmentally stressed for your you know situation. Obviously, I was like, well. That is just, it's so interesting to really look under the hood and see those numbers. And our yeah. daughter had this a similar experience just in this last month. You know, summertime, low, 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 went to school, first day at school, 200,
0: yeah. you know? So let me give you the headline there. Stress management is weight management. And let me then now write the mm-hmm. article in a, relatively Newtonian way, because, you know, we want to kind of show sort of how these things happen by analogy with billiard balls. I hit the cue ball then the cue ball hits the two ball that hits the four ball that hits the eight ball in the corner pocket. That's just the way humans generally explain things. So I'll try to explain it that way, but knowing that there's a lot of other factors happening everywhere all at once. So you get stressed, you release stress hormones. Stress hormones release uh, glucose, glucose stimulates the release of insulin over time in the body, and this is just a general rule, that the excess of any one molecule will cause a resistance to itself. So over time, elevated levels of insulin will cause a resistance to insulin. So when cells are no longer sensitive to insulin and they're not taking glucose in for the production of energy, you, it is storing then that glucose as fat, as triglycerides generally in adipocytes, fat cells. So there you have your chain link fence of why stress causes weight gain in terms of like some of the protocols that I specifically adopted on kind of my journey and how it relates to a lot of the things that we've been talking about, you know, one of the key um, protocols was a sixteen-eight intermittent fasting mm-hmm. protocol. Now, um, there are a lot of like philosophical reasons to fast and to, you know, sort of uh,
2: suffer <laughs> suffer but also just stop
0: craving so mm-hmm. much to really i guess what I, how i would frame it is to be able to delineate between biological needs and psychological desires
2: yeah manage consumption artfully and to
1: choose
0: yeah and then if you cannot crave or succumb mm-hmm. to your cravings for food can you you know not succumb to your cravings for your phone or alcohol or codependency or gambling or whatever else. So there's a lot of other reasons and there's obviously baked into all these spiritual traditions and there's reasons, other physiological reasons around the creation of BDNF and autophagy, the recycling of cells and all this kind of other stuff that is very, very interesting, um, you know, around longevity, but as it pertains specifically to weight management and, energy balance you know obviously if you're only eating in an eight hour window if you've condensed all the consumption of your food between let's say 10 and six you are probably also restricting your calorie intake probably but not necessarily you can fast and eat 20 pints of ice cream in two hours and gain weight um but you're probably not doing that.
2: But By, even if, if, from my understanding, which is slim, but even if you ate the same number of calories in an eight-hour window as you spread out over a twelve-hour window, you would you would use those calories differently, which is another difference in calories in calories out.
0: Correct. So
2: and explain so there, why.
0: There's a couple. So in vivo mice studies, they've shown um, that the consumption of the same amount of calories over a 24 hour window will maintain Mm -hmm. weight, whether, and the same consumption, the same amount of calories in an eight hour window, you will lose Lose weight.
2: Right. I remember that. Um,
0: Now there's a whole bunch of reasons why that might be. Um, And of course, despite sharing the best laid plans, we are not mice, but we, um, but if you kind of, tease out some of the things that we just talked about, you know, you you might understand why like not eating for 16 hours is going to really help glucose management and insulin management. So you're less likely to store calories as fat. You're more likely to use them and burn them as energy and maintain your insulin sensitivity. You know, if you're only eating within an eight hour window instead of spreading out you know all of your consumption across a twenty-four hour window, and if and of you, course like this is set against the backdrop of a culture that like now eats pretty much all twenty-four seven. Almost. So you know yeah. so yeah, um, so yeah, yeah. So there is that time constriction compo- component mm-hmm. that seems to be powerful. There's also the calorie constriction component inside of that time mm-hmm. restricted, uh, you know thing that that is also plays certainly a part of it. But again, for me, I think it really points to glucose, homeostasis and insulin management. Certainly for me, that was key, you know, as I was running pre-diabetic blood glucose levels at 125 milligrams per deciliter fasting. And then after um, I started to adopt this fasting protocol, You know, three or four months later, I brought that down to, you know,
2: 85 or 90. Yeah, it was was fast. It was amazing. And that I would say, you know, is one of the most incredible things that, and we've talked about this before, is that your, your body can get so pretty messed up over a long period of time, you know, decades, and you can turn things around pretty damn quick. And yeah. that's incredible.
0: Yeah, I think you you've often used the metaphor of the polluted river that yeah. if you just leave it alone, it will generally reverse itself in, unless it's gotten past the point mm-hmm. of no return. And then the tipping point the is tipping the dangerous point. part. Yeah. yeah. And when you know if you have, you know, um, proliferative, you know, cancer mm-hmm. that has metastasized, can you turn that around? I mean, you know, there's actually a whole conversation that we could have around the Warburg effect and, and, and fasting and, and cancer and metabolism, but we'll save that for, for another time. Um, but, uh, so, so I think fasting and weight management, um, and energy balance that's certainly, um, like a very, very potent technique. it's Jeff now I always heard vitamin supplements are a waste of money as they just pass through your system expensive pee, right well now I understand why and the reasons it's so hard to absorb large doses of certain nutrients through the pills powders and gummies at the store Now, when you take these supplements or even consume foods, your digestive system must extract vitamins and minerals and depending on the nutrient, convert them to a form your body can use. Now, some nutrients depend on proteins to transport them into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Now, often these supplements contain such large quantities that your body doesn't have enough resources Like transporter proteins to absorb the nutrients. Since your body can't store water-soluble vitamins like C and the B family, as well as minerals like magnesium, zinc, and selenium, they wind up excreted and never reaching the cells where they are needed to support your immune system, metabolism, nervous system, and so much more. Now, I didn't know all of this when I started taking Live On Labs Lipospheric Vitamin C. I just know that if Skyler was giving them to me, they must be good. Well, it turns out that Live On Labs understands the difficulty of high-dose nutrient absorption, and they became the first dietary supplement company to use liposomal encapsulation technology to enhance nutrient absorption. Now, liposomes are double-layered spheres that Live On Labs uses to surround, protect, and transport water-soluble vitamins and minerals into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Liposomes are made of essential phospholipids, the same material that makes up your cells, so they easily pass into the cells and deliver the nutrients, staying behind to fortify the cell membrane. Now the Live Labs liposome encapsulated supplement line includes vitamin C, a B vitamin complex that contains pre-methylated folate, a magnesium specifically formulated for the brain, and the master antioxidant glutathione. And guess what? Only the ingredients necessary for maximum absorption. That means no sugar and no fillers, no colors, no artificial flavors. If you don't wanna know what that tastes like, and trust me, you probably don't, make sure to follow the instructions on the package. Uh, Right now, Live On Labs is offering commune listeners free sample two packs of all their liposome encapsulated supplements with any purchase. This is a great way to try all six of their powerful supplements and get accustomed to their weird, unique, goo-like consistency. Just get yours at liveonlabs.com slash commune. This offer is only available through my link. You must go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. Live on Labs has a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. So you have nothing to lose. Go to liveonlabs.com slash commune
2: talk a little bit about um hot and cold therapy just because observing your your personal protocol it certainly has been pretty intrinsic to your
0: so be so I think it's the interesting stacking of various protocols that can create like very, very powerful knock-on impacts. So in addition to that sixteen eight protocol, I began to adopt a cold water, a deliberate cold water therapy that is mostly about cold showers just because we don't have a cold plunge here, but sometimes in Topanga when we have a cold plunge, um, I'll do that. And I've typically just absolutely hated the cold. Um, Even more than me. Yeah, well, (laughs) way more. And, um, but again, this is why I think it's important to have these conversations, even though they get a little bit geeky and scientific at times. But if you understand the underlying miraculous mechanisms of your organism, if you understand some of these concepts, it is so much easier to adopt the protocols because you actually understand what's going on and you can start to experiment and tweak without just being paralyzed and just say, I don't know, just tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. I get it. People just like, they don't have the time to break all this stuff apart necessarily. They just wanna be told what to do, fine. But when you understand some basic concepts around metabolism, You know, you will understand why cold water therapy might be so effective right before you break your fast.
2: All right, so give it to me.
0: Okay, so you fasted for 15 hours and 50 minutes. Before you take that first bite of food, what's going on in your body? At this point, you know you have very low blood glucose, right? So you get into the cold shower. Brr. Your core body temperature plummets from 98.6. It goes down a few degrees. Your internal thermostat sits right up here, says, oh my God, we've got to get you back up into the Goldilocks zone around 98.6. How are we going to do that? We need to make heat process of thermogenesis. How do we make heat? Well, heat is energy. Where do we make energy? We need fuel to make the energy.
2: There's no sugar.
0: There's no glucose around. What do we use?
2: Fat. Yummy, yummy fat.
0: We oxidize fat. We break down Mm -hmm. triglycerides into free fatty acids, just like I said, and we use that fat in this process called thermogenesis to reheat our bodies. And that is happening highly effectively in this one form of tissue known as brown fat. So like brown fat is like the good happy fat it's brown because it has a high concentration of mitochondria in it. Mitochondria are brown, I think, because there's an enzyme there's in there iron, that requires okay. iron in there. Yeah. And these are very metabolically active cells that are v- largely responsible for thermogenesis. And they will actually beige your mean caustic white fat. They will make your white fat brown. And so...
2: If you if you get yourself cold regularly, that's yeah. what turns your white fat brown or beige.
0: Yeah. Is it was one of those, one of the techniques that will do that. And so, right. So you're just think about it. You're fasted, low blood glucose, you get cold, your body needs to make you warm. Mm-hmm. You need a fuel source. There's no glucose. You burn fat.
2: That's another way that the calories in calories out is broken apart because I mean, that's, this is all we're all talking calories out but it's a different it's a way that calories out is configured totally differently than you know running for 50 minutes on the treadmill yeah
0: so that protocol right there of fasting and before i break my fast take a cold shower that was a massive accelerator mm-hmm. for weight loss and the oxidation of fat for me it was huge
2: and just metabolic like function i think even more important because i i mean i like coming back to the where we started i think the more interesting and amazing piece of your health journey is not so much that you you physically look more fit which is great and I, I like to have you on my arm more now but you're you really are so much healthier and that's a whole system thing and that's where what you've done now is so different than like when you turn 40 you stop drinking and you stopped eating bread and you lost a bunch of weight but it really it was just a it was just a weight thing it wasn't a metabolic health thing and that is the game changer and what i didn't i mean i had no i had no understanding really of how metabolic health is related but so different than weight
0: management yeah well it's an upstream from all the major killers, all the major okay. chronic diseases, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, upstream from all of those diseases is metabolic health or metabolic dysfunction. Um, the, the last, I think, little piece here um, relates to muscle, muscle development, muscle management in relation with weight management and calorie restriction. And this is like, once you sort of really get it all together and want to fine tune all the pieces. So I went from a peak of 204 pounds to 142 pounds. That was my lightest. And I honestly felt pretty good at Mm. 142 because you feel so light on your feet. Um, But I had lost basically all my muscle mass during that process. And that's okay. Um, It gave me a base from which to start. So it kind of worked for me. And then since that time, I've put on about 15 pounds, mostly muscle. Um, And now I'm kind of in this sort of fine-tuning place where how can I not overeat, not violate the theories of thermodynamics, but also ingest and consume enough protein in order to maintain or even build muscle mass. And this is the the sensitive little balance. So, you know, let's say I I exercise a lot and I have probably a pretty good basal metabolic rate at this juncture. So I can probably consume 3000 calories per day and remain relatively neutral, but I don't want to consume all those calories all the time, but I still, but if I'm gonna, but if I'm losing weight, I'm also gonna be losing muscle mass. Mm -hmm. So of those calories that I do eat, I wanna make sure that I'm getting enough protein because again, that protein, will be broken down, catabolized into core amino acids that my body will use for muscle, Mm -hmm. but also for transport molecules, for enzymes, for neurotransmitters, for, I mean, insulin itself is a peptide hormone. It's made of amino acids. Sometimes we just think about protein as like, we eat a cow and it goes right to Mm. our muscle. But no, it's like, we're making hundreds of thousands of proteins in the body all the time. Muscle just happens to be one expression of them. Particularly though, for muscle, you wanna make sure that you are eating enough of the kind of what's called the branch chain amino acids, the like leucine, for example. So just briefly on amino acids and protein, there are 21, 20 or 21 amino acids, in the body, your body miraculously endogenously makes 12 of them. So Mm -hmm. develops and generates 12 of them on its own, but there are nine essential amino acids, essentially the amino acids that you must get from dietary sources. Now, and one of those amino acids that's very responsible for the generation of muscle is leucine. So where are you going to get this protein uh, to knowing that there's a high thermic effect of protein, right? And knowing also that it's about um, four calories per gram, right? And you want to try to get about a gram per pound that you weigh. Now, that is very difficult. And a lot of people argue about this all day. 0.8 0.8 grams per pound 1.2 I've ever even heard like Peter is a 1.2 guy, you know, but let's just say I weigh 158 pounds or something to get 158 grams of protein per That's day crazy. is pretty difficult. Of, yeah. You know, um, you can do it if you really want to geek out about it. It is very hard to do by just eating plants. Now you can do it by just eating plants, and of course, look at all these unbelievable, completely ripped athletes who are vegan. Are who are vegan yeah. But they
2: they're eating know really carefully what they're yeah. doing. They've yeah. got
0: nutritionists and trainers, and they know all of their uh, you know protein sources that they get within plants. Yeah, sure, pea protein. Or look at a
2: gorilla who I think is good. The gorilla who is who is a As a vegetarian, but they have to spend like six to eight hours of the day eating.
0: Yeah. I mean, isn't
2: part of it just like like how much you're actually going to eat if you're going to, you know, of high quality food if you're going to be a vegetarian? Yeah, you have to
0: eat a lot as a vegan. You have to eat a lot tremendous volume of food and intention. And you have to really, really know know what you're doing. You got to like, okay, my quinoa and my mushrooms and my pea protein and my soy. And you've got to just really, really know. It's hard to be a casual vegan and get enough protein to maintain or build muscle mass. Mm -hmm. So then, okay, like your other choices there are yeah you can eat meat but certainly there's you know salmon and like line caught tuna and these kind of fish and the other smash fish these kind of small oily fishes um are very potent sources of protein um if you want to get into whey which is curds and whey. So it's, you know, comes from the curdling of milk and the creation of cheese um, and the, then the dehydration of, of that through that process. The removal can, of lactose. So the removal of lactose, um, you know, whey protein is, um, is very, very effective. If you want to consume a lot of protein without also consuming the fat that comes with it that's highly caloric. So this is like the little, once you start to get really fine-tuned in this process, in this journey, you start to look at those kinds of things of like, how can I keep calorie intake at a certain level while maximizing my protein intake? And
2: And, and it's not very, it's not expensive. I mean, you know, high quality, high-quality meat sources, fish sources are very expensive, and whey is one of those things that is, you know, is inexpensive and yeah, easily available.
0: And then, of course, you have to train. <laughs> so, you know, you can get all of your requisite protein, uh, but then, you know, you've got to train. You've got to get to the gym or rock or squat or do your pull-ups or do your push-ups, et cetera. And so, you know, that's when you start to really optimize around this kind of balancing act between weight management and muscle management. Hey, it's Jeff. And I'm excited to tell you about one of our partners here on the podcast. Vivo Barefoot is a natural health lifestyle company on a mission to reconnect people to the natural world and to their innate potential from the ground up, person by person, foot by foot. Created by Galahad and Asher Clark, two cousins from a long line of cobblers, Vivo Barefoot draws upon three simple barefoot design principles wide, thin, and flexible. These design principles lead to optimal foot health and natural movement. Vivo Barefoot makes their footwear from the best materials nature has to offer, allowing your feet to move, to breathe, and to perform with every step. A million years of engineering, also known as evolution, has yielded the perfect blueprint for standing, walking, and running. Your feet. When left to their own devices, they can cope with everything from walking and running to jumping and dancing, but cram them in a modern shoe and you cut off their natural potential. Now I've been wearing Magna Forest boots for hiking the trails here in California. I love the feeling of the connection to the ground and their airiness while still providing me with the basic protections. I also get a ton of comments on the unique and attractive design. What's more, Vivo Barefoot is a certified B Corp. Vivo Barefoot is giving feet the freedom to move as mother nature intended. The best piece of technology ever to be put into a shoe is the human foot. So you can get 15% off your first Vivo Barefoot order at vivobarefoot.com. And use the code VIVO COMMUNE fifteen at checkout. That's vivobarefoot.com, and use the code VIVO COMMUNE fifteen at checkout. Reclaim your natural potential. The journey starts with your feet.
2: Let's just dial away from your experience, which has been intensive in your, you know, you're a you're a citizen scientist who's like really gone into this intellectually as well as experientially. But for people who, you know, whatever, work eight to 12 hours a day and don't have the time or the necessarily the inclination or the resources to really geek out on this, like, like give the, I mean, give the top line of like, like, what are the, you know, it's annoying, but what are the five things that are pretty easy to do that you can like start tomorrow? Um, You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's important for it to not feel like you have to become a, a health hacker in order to avail yourself of, of these, you know, really like dynamic Health no. changes.
0: So, so give it a, to me. A whole foods, high fiber diet that has a low glycemic load. Okay. okay. So, whole foods, high fiber, low glycemic load. That's one thing. Sleep is. That's the also other.
2: known as when you go to the grocery store, shop around the outside, right? It's kind sure. of. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. a fairly good one.
0: Yeah. Don't don't go in the middle aisles. So that is from a dietary perspective, um, sleep. So everyone knows at this juncture, not everyone, but most people know a lot of the sleep protocols, but sleep is absolutely key to insulin sensitivity and energy levels in general. So sleep, we didn't talk about that that much. Um, I would say a time restricted or calorie restricted focus. So some kind of fasting protocol, even even, if
2: it's 12, 12, 12, or, you know, just so that you're not eating into the midnight hours.
0: Correct. Try to take your last bite of food three hours before you go to sleep Mm -hmm. and give your body an opportunity to repair and restore. We can't always be in growth mode. We need to also repair and, and restore. So even if it's 12-12, that's a great place to start. And it's really not that hard. You might not like trigger high-level autophagy or whatever, but you'll um, you'll give your, your body a chance to recover and you won't be in a constant state of hyperinsulinemia or high insulin levels. I would say take a cold shower before you eat your first bite of food in the morning pretty much everyone has the accessibility to cold water. And so while you're in a quasi-fasted state, even if you're not sixteen-eight, just take a cold shower in the morning. There's so many other benefits associated with that, like prolonged dopamine release. Um, it's great for your immune system, um, but really for your metabolic health, for the reasons that we described, you know, push the edges of your psychological thresholds. Let me add
2: to that because I think it's really important for people who are like where that sounds like just an awful idea. I can't remember who said this, but it was really helpful for me because the, the thought of taking a cold shower first thing in the morning just sounds so bad. But the only way I can do it is to start warm and then dial the temperature down. And somebody said that, And then I get down as cold as I can get, and then I can be in there for a bit of time. And but if I just start going in cold, I can't do it. And then if I do that for a few days, then I can start to get in cold. But it's like I have to like, I have Mm -hmm. to coax myself to cold being not as awful. And then my nervous system is like, oh, taking a cold shower isn't as bad. But if I just am like, I'm gonna just take a cold shower. I generally won't do it, but that's just a that's a kind of a way to sneak your way in. And somebody said that cold isn't. I mean, obviously, most effective is like an ice bath. that's down there at, you know, whatever less f- yeah, a freezing level, but cold is completely subjective. Cold. Cold, cold is subjective.
0: Yeah, cold is completely subjective. Some people can um, can get benefits from cold therapy at sixty degrees. You know, and mm. that's not that cold what's cold is what feels cold Mm -hmm. to you. And, um, and obviously you need to be safe, uh, about all of these protocols, but, you know, start with what you can, what pushes the edge of your comfort Mm -hmm. and, um, and then go down and down as you can. Usually like, you know, you want four to five sessions per week with a cumulative total of about 12 to 15 minutes of total cold therapy. So, you know, that means like two minutes in the morning, more or less every day or every other day or something like that. You don't have to be completely neurotic about it, but that's really where you're gonna see um, the the real benefits. And there's obviously a psychological benefit, you know, to this as well. I mean, that's why Navy SEALs train in cold right. water, et cetera.
2: It does feel really good after.
0: <laughs> well, it, it also, yeah, it, you know, it, it has, uh, as I mentioned, you know it stimulates a dopamine response up to 48 hours after the session wow and it will also increase epinephrine or um without increasing cortisol so it is an unbelievable technique also if you want to be focused if you're about to enter a learning bout or you know you need to focus on anything particular I mean, we know this just as a product of direct experience. You get a cold shower, you feel pretty alert, mm-hmm. but there's a reason for that, which is that you know your adrenal glands uh, secrete epinephrine, and you get the jolt of that particular neuromodulator that makes you feel very alert, but not, but without the cortisol. So mm-hmm. that's a pretty amazing attribute. Mm-hmm. Um, so we covered sleep, diet, fasting cold therapy and then the last one it really is resistance training you need to work your muscles in fact what i would suggest is if you have the option between aerobic training or muscle training opt for muscle training it's it's going to be it's gonna, from a thermodynamics perspective it's going to burn more calories but long term you know the development of muscle mass has so many beneficial attributes from a metabolic perspective. That being said, you know, ideally you're doing aerobic exercise four to five times per week. Most of that is zone two. So you get your heart rate up to about 60 to 70% of capacity. And then one, So let's
2: just dial. So zone two being where you, you're, you feel like you're working, but you can still hold a conversation.
0: Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So you got your your heart rate up to sixty or seventy percent of capacity. So you do that maybe three or four times a week, and then twice a week you do like a zone five where you're pushing the maximum heart rate, and um, you know you're burning different kinds of fuels during zone two versus zone five. Zone two is better for burning fat. Zone five is more about burning glucose and glycolysis because of oxygen debt and a whole bunch of other reasons, but um, but the combination seems to be sort of the,
2: the about golden three and chalice. Four. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> three
0: and four. So to sum up, stress triggers the release of hormones, including glucocorticoids like cortisol from the adrenal glands. Now, chronic stress can lead to insulin resistance, which can make it very difficult to maintain a healthy weight. Now protocols like intermittent fasting, stress management, resistance training, and cold water therapy can help. They certainly helped me. So if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and hit the notification bell so you'll never miss an episode. Leave a comment to let us know your thoughts and don't forget to share our content with others who might benefit from this valuable information okay that's all from the commune for today my name is jeff krasnow and i'm here for you hey it's jeff and when it comes to your health and longevity you hold nothing back you understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile well this relentless drive runs in your blood that's why inside tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength speed recovery and optimize your health for the long haul created by leading scientists in aging genetics and biometrics inside tracker analyzes your blood your DNA and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock Real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward
2: slash. D R G